Let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, please. Matthew chapter 5. And we're looking at verses 31 and 32 today. Just two verses in terms of our text. So please find your way there on your smartphone or your tablet or your computer or that book rack tray Bible right in front of you, page 1502, Matthew chapter 5. So we're in a series called The Kingdom of God. It's the story, it's the gospel of Matthew that we're looking at and we're in a subsection of Matthew which is called the Sermon on the Mount. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is deconstructing the a popular view of religion and relationship with God, and he's constructing, he's uh, revising and, and sharpening and bringing back into focus what it really means to be his covenant people. And over the last few weeks of this section of the Gospel of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been in some heavy topics, haven't we? We saw a few weeks ago that anger leads to murder. Last week we saw that lust leads to adultery, and today we're going to see how adultery leads to divorce. Those are heavy topics, aren't they? Uh, you know, I was thinking all week, we're in the Lenten season and people give up things during Lent. Those would be three great things to give up during Lent. <laughs> Murder, adultery, getting rid of a spouse that you've had enough with. You know, those are, those are great, great things to give up during Lent. This is serious teaching, and yet, aren't you glad that we have the Word of God that we can go to? And as we talk about such an important topic today in the church, the topic of divorce, that is so often divisive and problematic, uh, wherever you are today, here's what, here's what I hope you'll get out of this message today. First of all, I hope that this message will be an infusion of strength into those of you that are married today. This will be a message of strength for marriage. That's really the focus of what Jesus is saying here. And for those of you that might be in a troubled marriage today, I hope you're going to just receive just a, a volume of grace and encouragement and action points for where you can start in seeing restoration in your marriage. And if today you're already, after having opened up and looked at this text, feel a wave of guilt or shame over your life for whatever reason, divorce that's happened, maybe decisions you made that were not in the will of God and now you've come to understand that, or you fearing that you're going to hear something that is going to condemn you forever, I hope that this will be a time of amazing healing in your heart and that you will sense the spirit of the living God saying, I'll take you right where you are today. Forget about the past. Look for what I'm gonna do in your life moving forward, and you can experience the grace and mercy and joy of the Holy Spirit in your life today. So that's where we are in this message. This is not a condemning message. This is a freeing message. It's a healing message, and it's an important one for the church of Jesus Christ. It's an important one for our church here at Three Crosses. So let's look at the text, and then we're gonna unpack it. Verse 31 Jesus speaking, he says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. All right, that's our text. <laughs> now, this is, I told you, right up, this is heavy stuff, okay? Okay. But let me just outline this where we're going today. There's just two big ideas that we're going to massage this morning. The first idea comes in verse 31, which is basically essentially the way we tend to look at marriage. It's our view of marriage that's here in this text. And we're going to see exactly what our view tends to be. And then we're going to see something of what Jesus has to say about his view and the way his view ought to 
contextualize whatever it is that we're dealing with in our marriages, okay? So we're going to look at our view, typically, and then we're going to look at Jesus' view. That's the main idea. And when it comes to our view uh, with marriage and divorce, typically, what I find in verse 31, that there's this permissive view that can be found almost anywhere these days regarding divorce, even in the church. Now, we get that from the little phrase, it has been said. This was something that was very popular during Jesus' day. That there was this normative sense of divorce. That divorce was okay. Divorce could just, if you needed one, you got one. Just make sure you do it right and get it done. This was Jesus' day. And I have a feeling there's a great parallel today. In fact, the percentage of born-again adults, not just people who call themselves Christians, But people who say they are born again, meaning that they are followers of Jesus, the percentage of born again adults who have been married and divorced is now statistically equivalent to that of among non-born again uh, adults. Did you hear that? That means basically we feel divorce, the church of Jesus Christ feels that divorce is just as normative as people out there in the world who don't have a personal relationship with God, who do not view necessarily marriage as God's institution for a lifetime. So this is a, this is a problem, and it needs to be addressed. Now, like every other matter of the heart found in this message, Jesus begins by saying, it has been said, which is this idea that there was somewhat of a normative view. But Jesus points out what has been around for a long time, and that is that ever since the very beginning, There have been periods of time where God's people have looked at divorce as sort of whatever they wanted to do, as an option, so to speak. It's easy to do. And what's strange and even ironic about this is that there's also periods in history and church history where getting a divorce or going through a divorce was a really difficult thing to do. In fact, I was combing sort of my memory of church history, and I remember the story of King Henry VIII. You remember, 16th century, this is a ways back, the King of England. And you remember that at one point he wanted to, he asked the the Pope, Pope Pius II, to annul his marriage with Catherine of Aragon because she had not provided him with an heir to the throne. And the, the, the Pope denied his request. And this began great conflict between King Henry VIII and the Catholic Church. And this resulted in, <laughs> this is amazing, it's, it's, you know, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. King Henry VIII secedes from uh, Catholicism, being, uh, the Pope being the head of the Catholic Church, and he names himself the head of the Church of England. This is where it all begins in terms of the Church of England and the the State Church of England under King Henry VIII. This is amazing. Why? Because the Pope wouldn't side with his desire to annul a marriage that was before God. Now, King Henry VIII, if you know anything about him, he was a philanderer, womanizer, adulterous relationships, but he wanted to do things properly, (laughs) and the Pope said no. Well, he becomes the, the... the head of the state as well as head of the church, and so he annuls his own marriage. (laughs) And then, you know, going to the younger, prettier Anne Boylan, uh, who also did not provide him with uh, an heir, and experienced some things that were found unfaithful in her own life. So King Henry VIII 
had her executed. But before he had her executed, he actually pronounced an annulment over her so that he could sort of leave that whole scene with not having, you know, just executed, I don't understand the rationale to this, but just having executed her without the proper release of the marriage. Ah, this is weird. Did you know that up until the mid-1800s in England, it was, it, you could not get a divorce without parliamentary approvement, approving, approving? That's amazing. Uh, it, wa- it wasn't until uh, recently in our own state, 1969, where this no-fault divorce came in, so that before you had to have sort of cause and reason and maybe prove that there was some sort of adulterous relationship. And so all I'm saying is, we'll get a little bit deeper into this in a minute, all I'm saying is, is that even though God's word has said all along that he hates divorce, Malachi 2.16, he also hates violence, he doesn't want us breaking faith, God has been clear all along, but there's been periods in history and even church history where it's either been really difficult to get a divorce or really easy to get a divorce. And when Jesus, in this scene, Matthew chapter 5, is speaking to the religious leaders and to his disciples, pointing out what it means to be a true subject of the kingdom of God. He's saying, look, divorce is not as simple as you make it out to be. He's been very strong on this. Uh, God has been very strong on this all the way through. Now, let me just stop right here in the, in the outline. You notice there's three little numbers there that you could fill some things in. Why, why is there this permissive view of divorce? Let me just offer a few reasons. They're not in the text, but just some things I think you'll understand. Number one, the reason why divorce is permissive or the view of divorce is permissive today is because there's a lot of people who are divorced. A lot of people who are divorced. I call this precedent, the argument of precedent. 40% of weddings performed in the United States are remarriages. 40%. And of those 40% that get remarried, 60% of those will end up in another divorce. That's statistically, that doesn't really encourage us to know that we've got a 50-50 chance of making it 20 years if you got married today. Those are kind of discouraging to statistics. The point is, we have a very permissive view of divorce because so many people are. Number two, there's a legal pathway for divorce. There's precedent, number one. There's also a pathway. I said a moment ago, 1969, our state legalized no-fault divorce. No longer did you have to ascribe any fault to the other for the dissolution of a marriage. You could just say, I'm tired of this person, and walk into the court of law and get a divorce. In fact, if you search it online today, uh, you can find out that for 149 bucks, you can get your divorce. What a deal. Thirdly, it's what people in marital trouble often feel is best for them. Uh, I call this pragmatism or preference. I hear people all the time say, I'm tired of this marriage. It's frustrating me like crazy. I want to get out of it. I want to, I want to. This person never does this. I want, I want. I have people tell me, and I'm not a counselor. I tell people this when I sit down with people that want to meet with me about an issue. I say, I'm not a counselor. I'm not a licensed counselor. I'm a pastor. I'm going to tell you what God's word has to say. You've got a problem in your life and you want to talk about it, we're going to go to God's word. And, and so I'm not a counselor, I'm just saying this, and I'm not putting down counselors, I'm just not a licensed counselor, but I hear people all the time saying to me, they say, well, I want this, I want that. It's like, it's like the whole thing in life, they, they say, certainly God doesn't want me to be unhappy. Oh, oh, of course, God would never want you unhappy. Where do you find that in Scripture, that God's will for you is to be happy? I point it out to people, God's will isn't that we be happy, God's will is that we be holy. And there's a difference between holiness and happiness. And frankly, I think that when you live a holy life, that's really where you're most happy anyway. 
And that's what Jesus is saying, but we think that happiness is what we want. So I, I'm always listening for the person saying, but I want to know what God wants. Boy, that's refreshing when you sit down with somebody and they say, I got this issue, I got this problem, whatever it is, marriage, uh, relationship problem, thing at work, thing in my own life, I've got this problem, but I want to know what God has to say because I want to do what God's will is. Boy, that's refreshing. I wish I heard that a little bit more often. So the point is, and, and that's true of my life too, I can easily default to Larry's preferences. So there's, there's precedent, there's pathway, and there's preference, okay? Those are the three reasons why we have a permissive view of divorce. Those are just simple, you know, take it for whatever it's worth, but I think that that's sub- substantial in terms of what is going on here in the text. So the first point of this text, the first main idea is that there's just this permissive view about divorce And it even has permeated the church. So let's look at what Jesus has to say about divorce. Verse 32, here's the next big idea in the text. Jesus is basically saying, hey, 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 wait. You have heard, essentially, that if you want a divorce, just go through the right channels, get it done, just take care of business. But to clean all that up, Jesus is in a mode of restoration Telling the people that, watch this, there's two things we're going to point out here. Number one, he's going to tell them that divorce is rarely the right option, even for a troubled marriage. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down right or correct or best. Rarely the right, correct, best option. And I want you to circle the word rarely because that's the point of what Jesus is saying. I mean, this is, by the way, I can't say everything about divorce and remarriage today in 30 minutes. Cannot do it. I'm going to try to hit the big nuggets today, and this is one of them. Jesus is saying that divorce is rarely the right, best option, even for a troubled marriage. Now, the need for speaking up into this issue is fairly substantial, considering that all the synoptic gospels record this account that Jesus says here, and Matthew comes at this issue twice in his gospel. And I want to show you the other place where that comes up because it's going to be a lot of months before we get to Matthew 19. Let's go there quickly. Nice to hear pages turning or computers clicking, keyboards clicking. Matthew 19. And I want to show you this because this, I think, fills out a little bit more of what we see here in Matthew 532, which is very abrupt and very uh, succinct. Nothing wrong with that, but let's get a little background. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's actually going to give his life as a ransom. He's, he's in the final stages of, of that uh, journey in his life. And as he's coming into uh, uh, Judea, uh, large crowds followed him, verse 2, uh, and he healed them there. And some Pharisees came to him to test him. And they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? All right, so here's a little bit of a question behind what Jesus is referring to here in Matthew 5, 31, where he says, you have heard it said, uh, if you divorce, you should, anyone divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And then they were just into the form, get the form right, and everything is all right. And Jesus is being tested here uh, from these Pharisees. Now, what, what is the test? The test is this. If you know Jewish history, you know that at this time there were two rabbinical schools that occupied the training of rabbis throughout Palestine. And there was one school called the school of Hillel, and there was another school called the school of Shammai. And these were two rabbinical schools that were uh, 
philosophically on a different page. In fact, the Talmud, which is uh, rabbinical writings about the scriptures, record no less than 300 contradictions or conflicts between uh, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi uh, Shammai on issues of the law. And so this was a big deal in the time of Jesus. And the Pharisees are hoping to get Jesus to say something about divorce that would pitch him against a certain group of people. This is not an, a true, sincere interest of finding out about what we ought to do when we're facing a divorce or what God thinks about it. It's a test. And by the way, Rabbi Hillel uh, believed, the, the school of Hillel believed that divorce could be done uh, for any reason whatsoever. A man could divorce his wife. And by the way, it was always pitched with the men having the strength. Women could not divorce their husbands during this period of time. Women were always at a disadvantage in first century when it came to divorce and remarriage. And God's people, have, we have seen this throughout the history of, of church history, and, and even before that, all the way back to the days of Moses, that women were often the victims of simply carnal desires of men. And so here comes uh, what Hillel would say. Hillel would say, if you wake up in the morning and your wife seems displeasing to you, you can divorce her. Uh, if she burnt the toast at breakfast time and you didn't like it, you could divorce her. Just give her her divorce papers and let her go. Now the reason why divorce papers were important is it was assumed that a woman would remarry for economical reasons. A woman that could not be married in that society was destitute, was destined to be homeless, destined to be without resources. And so it was likely that they would need to be remarried. So give her a certificate and send her on, our way, on her way. This is Hillel's school of, of rabbinical teaching on the subject of divorce. Shammai, on the other hand, was much more conservative. The school of Shammai said, huh, no, 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 no. You can't just divorce for any reason at all. There must be proven an unfaithfulness in the marriage of this woman that she was sexually unfaithful and therefore you can divorce her. And if that's the case, you divorce her with a bill of divorce as well. Shammai was very conservative. Now when Jesus is asked this question, it's interesting that he doesn't answer the question. Are you looking at that in Matthew 19? They ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's the school of Hillel, which, by the way, the Jewish Sanhedrin always cited or cited most often with the school of Hillel on every topic of the law. Um, so Jesus answers, and look at well, the way he answers this. He answers with a question, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife so they become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What an interesting answer to that question. So let me give you some action points. When it comes to, uh, if you're in a troubled marriage today or if you're in a situation where, where you're not sure what to do or you're contemplating divorce, can I give you four action points that I am praying would sort of give you a better and more biblical response to whatever it is that you're going through right now? Number one, according to what Jesus says here in Matthew 19, number one, we need to reinvest in pursuing and protecting God's design for marriage. And this is true for everybody, not just people who are married. But if you're in a marriage right now that's difficult and you're frustrated and you're considering divorce and you don't know which way to go, here's what you need to do. Action point. Jesus answers the question by saying, reinvest in God's design for marriage. And don't you notice, notice verse 4, that Jesus connects the creation 
of male and female to the marriage act. And I don't know about you, but in recent years, this has become amazingly important. That marriage and the definition of marriage is not based on culture, it is not based on preference, and it is not gender neutral. It is based on the creation account where Jesus quotes, haven't you read, God, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female. No gender neutrality here. Our culture is redefining marriage. It's redefining out of marriage any gender uh, consideration. Uh, a non-gender marriage, spouse one, spouse number two, on marriage certificates given in the state of California, we are redefining what God's institution of marriage is. And all Jesus, I'm pointing out, this is very germane to where we are today. It's not really the point of the sermon, but it is important that if you're going to establish a beachhead for a struggling marriage, you have to start with the Creator's design. And the Creator's design is, notice, creation, a man and woman, no longer coming as two, but becoming one, verse 6, and whom God has joined together, let no man separate. So there is a male and a female coming together, leaving their parents, cleaving unto themselves. We are to be a, a, a unit that is now the smallest piece of society that God has miraculously joined together in this thing called marriage. And we could, if we had more time, we could go to Ephesians 5, which talks about the role of husbands to their wives, that they ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and how the wife ought to respect the husband as the church respects and honors and submits to Christ. We could go to 1 Peter 3, talking about how husbands ought to be gentle with their wives, knowing that they are emotionally, can be emotionally fragile, and men can just destroy a woman's interior being by the words he says. He can be abusive, he can be condemning, and he can can just take this beautiful flower and shrivel it in his hands if he is not careful. And Peter comes along to this and the whole New Testament comes along trying to build up the fact that women are the special creation of God. God has created both male and female. They come to a marriage from different perspectives, but they both bring a beautiful compliment if they surrender themselves to the will of God. And so this is where marriage healing starts. It starts with God's command. Number two, we need to guard against impulsivity in ending a marriage. Guard against impulsivity against ending a marriage. Look at verse 7 of Matthew 9. So why then, they asked the Pharisees, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Listen, if, if we can't divorce for any and every reason, it already belies what, their true, what they believed about divorce. If we can't just divorce for any other reason. Why did Moses give a certificate of divorce and send the wives away for those people that were divorcing? Well, that's very interesting, isn't it? I think we ought to look back at the text that the Pharisees were quoting in Matthew 19. Let's go in our Bibles back to the Deuteronomy text, please. Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is where it comes from, Deuteronomy 24. And it says... Verse 1, follow along, and I'm going to read the punctuation, the grammar in this text. It's important. This is what Moses writes, the will of God for God's people. 
If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and this is the big controversy, what does that mean? We'll get back to that, comma, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, comma, gives it to her and sends her from his house, comma, and if she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, comma, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, comma, gives it to her and sends her from his house, comma, or if he dies, comma, then her first husband who divorced her, comma, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled, period. Now, read on, that would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. Now, I'm asking you the question. When you read that text, does that sound like Moses was giving permission for divorce? That the theme of Deuteronomy 24 is for men who find their wives displeasing to just give them a certificate of divorce? Is that what this is about? No. It's explaining that when a certificate of divorce is given, you can't keep going around, going around, going around, and then come back to the first marriage and say, let's just do this again. Now, here's what was going on in Moses' day. There was such impulsivity, a guy would say, eh, I don't want you anymore, and he'd just outline, just leave his wife. Moses had to put a stop to the bleeding. There was so ramp, divorce was so rampant, Moses steps in by the authority of God and says, first, there must be something displeasing, indecent found in her. We'll talk about that again in just a minute. And then she must be given a certificate of divorce showing that this marriage is now over, it's finished. So that when you husband are bouncing around from woman to woman and then letting more women go in your life, you don't come to the place of saying, you know, I think I'll go back to the original. She was best after all. <laughs> Moses says, uh-uh, not gonna happen. God's saying to, to stop this abuse, you can't go back. Now, I, I wanna be really clear about something because I've had the privilege a couple of times of remarrying people that were divorced. They, they divorced, they went out, they got, you know, they went their own direction, and then they discovered they had left the will of God, uh, and so there they were, they were both single again, or maybe never remarried, but they realized they had divorced unbiblically, they had divorced for sinful reasons, whatever, and now they want to get remarried. That's not what Deuteronomy 24 is prohibiting. Deuteronomy 24 is prohibiting an attitude that says, I'm just, I'm just sick of this thing. I want out. And for Moses to sort of stem the tide, he says, you can't go back to the original. Now, the beautiful thing about the, the new covenant is that we are the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom, right? And so the, all of marriage, Ephesians 5 tells us, is a picture of God's relationship to us. So when there has been divorce, there may be some of you here that have been through divorce, and there's an opportunity to repent, and if there's a way to re-enter into that original marriage in the plan and the will of God, that's a good thing, it's a beautiful thing, we would celebrate it, and I would be honored, and any of our pastors would be honored to have a moment like that with couples. I want to be clear that that's not what the Deuteronomy 24 passage is prohibiting. Deuteronomy 24 was prohibiting a careless, impulsive view of divorce that just took it out of the realm of, of uh, appropriateness and into the realm of personal preferences. Now, let me just stop right, here, right quick and give you a couple things that I want to just advise you on when it comes to impulsivity and divorce. Uh, 
I want to challenge you, don't emotionally consider divorce as an option when your marriage is rough. Don't emotionally start thinking, well, you know, if this thing doesn't turn around, you know, I'll give it another month. I'll give it another year. Whatever. Put in the blank. And if it doesn't turn around, I'm out of here because it's difficult. I will guarantee you that every marriage is going to come into seasons of great difficulty, and all of God's people who are married would say, (laughs) see, I've just seen if you're listening. Let me just say it. Amen! Every marriage is going to have difficulty, and if you emotionally start playing with the little idea of divorce, you know, I'll give you this time, I'll get you do this again, and here's the next thing, Uh, don't ever use the threat of divorce as a means of getting what you want or changing the behavior of your spouse, necessarily. Uh, People use divorce, they pull the divorce card. You do this again and I'm divorcing you. You say that to me again the way you say it, I'm going to divorce you. We use the divorce card. And pretty soon you use it so much, it's either a, a weak threat and the person just carries on, doesn't matter, or it's a threat you feel like you have to come down on. You start using the language of divorce and divorce eventually takes place. Um, My wife and I have never spoken of divorce in our marriage. And I'm not saying that as some, we just decided when we got married and a pastor encouraged us in our premarital counseling to just never entertain divorce. Uh, Basically, you're stuck with each other. And and there have been times in the seasons of our marriage where we've learned that. We have have seasons in our marriage where, um, where it has been so hard for my wife, Carla, uh, I'm, I'm being a little facetious. I, I, I probably am the biggest perpetrator of, of difficult moments. I'm a little dramatic sometimes. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that we... <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble if I keep talking about this right now. <laughs> We've never used the word divorce. Murder? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I, I did that in first service too, and I, I just wanted to get the reaction... And actually, that's not even so funny anymore. It used to be funny. But now, actually, people do that kind of stuff. It's crazy. But what my point is, we would never entertain divorce because we just know that how weird or hard it gets, God's desire is that we work it out. So we're stuck with each other. We'll even say that. We're stuck with each other. You know, and I want to encourage you with that, that, that divorce, when you start emotionally thinking about it, when you start using it as a trip card, it's, it's probably going to happen. Now you say, well, what if we've been using that word and we've been talking about that or I've been emotionally massaging that? Repent. Change your mind. Change your heart on that. Tell your spouse, or, I'm never going to bring up divorce again. I mean, seriously, that would be a huge stake and I'm committed to making this marriage work. Now, that doesn't mean a marriage is ultimately going to work. There are other issues that come into play, and there are things that devastate a marriage. But if you're in trouble today, if you need uh, concern, if you've got concerns about your marriage, listen, first thing, uh, get some counseling. Talk to a pastor uh, who's not a counselor necessarily, but will direct you towards some good marriage counseling. Communication, finances, sexual intimacy, these are in-laws, Conflict resolution, these are all things that everybody deals with. And why do you think you have the only problem in this area? People have this problem from the beginning of time, all these problems. You can't even come up with a problem that nobody has had. 
And so you can work it out. You can talk it. Now, sometimes it's not possible to work out because marriage takes a commitment on two people's hearts. And so I want to be really careful here. Maybe you've tried everything you could and the, your spouse went the other way. And, and, and some of you are victims of, of a spouse who's commit, who not committed any adultery, not no marital unfaithfulness, but decided they wanted a divorce. And you were clean in that regard, and they were also clean, but they just couldn't stand being around you, tired of the fighting, tired of the whatever. And I know I'm, I'm pulling back a lot of scabs here, but I'm telling you, God wants to take you where you are, and he wants to give you a pathway to work through it. And if you'll just be submissive to him, you might see some amazing things happen in your life. And I, I use the word might because it, always, it doesn't always work out that way. Um. So let's just remember where we are in the message here. Number one, these are four action points if your marriage is in a tough place. Number one, reinvest in God's design for marriage. Number two, guard against impulsivity when it comes to divorce. Number three, admit that your sin nature is the core of the marital conflict. Back in Matthew, uh, eight, Matthew 19, verse 8, Jesus said, it wasn't because Moses, let me get there and you should get there too. I want to show it to you. Matthew 19 Verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. And that's the same thing we find in, in Matthew chapter 5.32. So we need to... Uh, we need to admit that our sin nature is the problem. And maybe that's one of the things that could be beautiful today. You could go to your spouse and say, look, I know we're having problems, but I want to admit that I own some of this, and I own maybe a lot of this, or I own, identify it. This is what I own. And this is traced back to my sin nature. I am a sinner. And just, and you just come clean on that. You usually find reciprocity. A person will say, well, yeah, I'm a sinner too, and this is what I own. And then all of a sudden you've got something to work with. But we always draw the line and we say it's your fault and it's everything on you. And you just have to, you don't have to be married that long before you find out just how selfish we are as individuals. And my timer is telling me that it's time to wrap this sermon up right now. So uh, we need to be careful because sin uh, can do irreparable damage to a marriage and it's often and usually traced back to our own sin nature. And it might be good, just let's take just 20 seconds right now. And just think about one of those first three areas. Which one needs the greatest attention from you today? Identify it right now before you leave this service. Is it reengaging in God's plan for marriage? Is it reducing or eliminating impulsivity in divorce? Or is it admitting to your own sin nature? Ask the Holy Spirit to show you right now. And then lastly, we need to guard our hearts against pessimism and doubt. Um, in, the 19, in the Matthew 19 passage, the disciples hearing this, they said, wow, if, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better not to marry. <laughs> and some of you say, yeah, I feel that way now. I wish I wouldn't have gotten married. <laughs> and Jesus says, relax, calm down here. There are some people that probably shouldn't be married. That's what Jesus says. But if you are married, I've got a way through. You can trust me. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 19. He's calming his disciples down. We need to get rid of uh, pessimism and doubt. 
All right, let's, let's bring this thing together. Divorce is rarely the best or right option, Jesus said. And secondly, verse 32 of Matthew 5, divorce without proper cause only leads to a trajectory of sin and painful ex- realities. And there's two things that we risk when we, when we divorce unbiblically. And I, I know, I wish I had a little more time here, and it's okay, it's okay. But, you know, there, there's other reasons that divorce seem plausible. There's desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, with an unbelieving spouse, and they don't like your Christianity, and they've had it with you and Jesus, and they want out. The Bible says let them go. That's a hard one. I don't think we should just do that like, yeah, fine, leave. But if it's about your faith, not about the fact that you're a jerk and that you're an abuser with your words and all those kinds of things, if it's because of your faith in Jesus that someone says, I've had enough, you know, I didn't sign on for this when we got married, you found Jesus, okay, that's you, and they want to move on, the Bible says you can let them go. And I believe that there's a biblical cause for divorce if, if that's the case. And by the way, I think that's very rare. Because I find that Christians in a marriage where one is an unbeliever, that unbeliever is around Jesus so much. That person says, why would I ever leave this person? They are so loving to me, so caring to me, so thoughtful of me, so, 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 so. Not if you're being a jerk. Oh, I'm a Christian. She's leaving me because I'm a Christian. No, she's leaving you because you're a jerk. Okay? Also, in 1 Corinthians 7, it also says that if your spouse decides to separate, that should be for a very confined period of time. Otherwise, temptation can enter into the relationship. And the, the purpose of separation is to reconcile. So, if you divorce prematurely, if you divorce because you think that there's some thing that is you know, a compromise to the plan and the will of God in your life, you run the risk of remarrying in the will of God. Because if you divorce for reasons other than marital unfaithfulness, Jesus says you commit adultery. Because God's plan for you is to work out your marriage. And if you need separation time, you need counseling, you need to get all that stuff, that's fine. But at some point, God willing and things erode and this is where it gets really messy and sticky. It's God's desire that a believer and a believer would come back together in a marriage and reconcile that. And what often happens is, is well, that person moves on, they get married, Uh uh-oh, adultery. That breaks the marriage bond and now this person wants to remarry and remarriage in those cases are really not in God's best will for a person's life. The point that Jesus is making is is that you just have to be careful. It's not, there's not as much wiggle room as we think there is. You should be careful. And then what we also risk is becoming adulterers ourselves and the consequences that follow. Now, some of us, there's no doubt in a crowd this size, some of us have divorced unbiblically and we remarried unbiblically. And you say, what do I do? What am I going to do? Number one, if you've remarried unbiblically out of the will of God, stay married. (laughs) Don't try to fix that. Oh, I knew it was wrong. You know, I hear the craziest stuff, believe me. Stay married, work on your marriage, and watch this. God takes you right where you are. This is the beautiful thing of the new covenant. God's not shaming us in our past. You might have four marriages that failed, and all of them were unbiblical failures. 
You just wanted out. You just wanted your way. And you're a Christ follower, and here's the message of the Lord Jesus to your heart today. Would you just surrender to my life and let me heal you and let me make you complete and let me make what, what your life is now in the most beautiful way? Would you let me do that? So there's no shame at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only grace, forgiveness, and mercy. If we come to him with the Spirit of God, I know, I, I jumped the gun, I did that, whatever. Admit it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, well listen, this, is, uh, this has been a heavy message today. But aren't you glad that God's word speaks? Amen. Amen. And remember that even though we've been unfaithful to Jesus a million times over, he's never been unfaithful to us. And he never leaves us or forsakes us. What a Savior we have. Let's pray.